So we are covering a lot of ground this morning. We're going to be in Acts chapter 15, verse 36, through the end of chapter 16. Um, the, the, the good part about looking at large portions of Scripture is you can kind of get a, an idea of the flow of the text. At the same time, we sometimes miss out on some of the details, but that's okay because we can always go back and read the Bible and study it. But this morning, we're going to focus on the nature of the mission of God. And it's so interesting, this passage, and the way it begins, because it shows us something real about the people of God, that these people who were performing the mission in those early days, they're not God. In fact, there's a a lot of faults that these individuals have as they make their way through the early days of the church, similar to all of us and and some of the things that we bring to the table. I've said this before, quoting um, Pete Scazzaro, that while Jesus might live in our hearts, Grandpa still lives in our bones. And, And that means that we got a lot of stuff. We have a lot of things that we bring with us into the family of God, that that God is unearthing as we walk with him throughout our lives. I often talk about how we're called to show the world what God is like. This is basically the mission of the church. We're image bearers, commissioned to reflect the goodness and glory of the one true God to a world turning, turning over stone after stone to find him. Bruce Marshall was a Scottish author. He once wrote that the young man who rings the bell at the brothel is unconsciously looking for God. So much truth is packed into this little statement, and it's a truth that reaches beyond sexual desire. Everyone is searching for God, and everyone is searching for the kingdom. Whether we realize it or not, we were created to worship. And if our worship is not directed toward the one true God, it will be redirected elsewhere. But see, the problem arises when the objects of our worship and our affections are challenged. This is when we push back. This is when we seethe with anger. Don't mess with our gods. Our passage this morning will show us how the mission of God pushes against the idols of this world, both within our own hearts and relationships as his people, and in the hearts and lives of those we encounter along the way. And when this happens, suffering, pain, and division are inevitable. But faithfulness means that even in the midst of our suffering, even in the midst of our pain, that we will direct our gaze toward God in thanksgiving and praise. And that's where we're headed this morning. And so you were given a bulletin as you came in. We're going to follow a simple outline that's on the right side of your bulletin. And a portion of the text is on the left. I would encourage you to use your Bibles if you have them or flip to a Bible app on your phone so you can track with us along the way. And so sometimes we fight. 1536 through 16.5. Our passage begins in a strange way, especially if we remember what just transpired, what we looked at last week. See, this young movement of Christ followers were on the brink of schism, on the brink of a divide. And see, Paul and Barnabas argued that this should not be the case because of what they observed taking place among the Gentiles. 
Peter then steps in. He paints this beautiful picture of salvation by grace, a grace that transcends barriers and ethnic lines of distinction. And James settles the matter, calling for followers of Jesus from every tribe, tongue, and nation to come together in unity. So they're waving the flag of unity. We all come together as the body of Christ, whether Jew or Gentile. Galatians talk about how there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. See, there's no barriers in the family of God. We are one family. And so following this beautiful moment of unity and love where the grace and mercy of God are put on full display, Paul and Barnabas decide to go and bring a word of encouragement to the young Gentile churches that had been established throughout their first missionary journey. And it is during this beautiful moment of unity and love that the pattern of this world begins to seep into the community of faith. The pattern of this world begins to seep into the community of faith. Let's take a look at what happens here. Verses 36 through 41. It says, And after some days Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. A couple things. Paul and Barnabas come together to plan out a mission to go and strengthen and encourage the Gentile churches throughout Asia Minor. Barnabas wanted to bring John Mark with them, and he was with them at the beginning of the journey, if you remember back. But then John Mark leaves them. Following Paul's interaction with Elimas the magician, maybe he was spooked by what he observed. Maybe it was too much for him to handle. He was a young guy at the time. The language of leaving actually carries a negative connotation, meaning that John Mark didn't just leave because he had some things to take care of. The text suggests that he abandoned them. Then Barnabas steps in, right? And we know Barnabas. We've seen him operating throughout the book of Acts. He's a man marked by his ability to encourage others and give them second chances. If you remember, Barnabas was the guy who had Paul's back when everyone was like, we don't want Paul here. He kills Christians. And Barnabas is like, come on, guys, let's hear him out. Let's hear him out. There's something different about him now. I don't know if you've noticed. There's a change in him. He wants to now extend that same compassion and grace toward John, Mark, and Paul wanted no part in that. And as a result, they separate. The text does not seem to indicate whether anyone was really right in this situation. And while some might argue that Paul was, based on him being commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord, it seems Paul's reaction is more so inspired by his flesh rather than the Spirit of God. And so the point is that is that the mission of God does not only invite outward persecution and trials, but often we see this division in our own ranks. In the words of one author, this sad scene sobers the idealism we may have succumbed to in the previous scene. The work of unity and reconciliation is difficult, and it requires constant watchfulness. No one, not even our heroes in the faith, are exempt from the need for that kind of vigilance. 
And so I think what we need to be careful of when we read this passage is that we don't just kind of waltz by it and say like, oh, that's a shame. Because many of us have experienced this kind of loss. Many of us have gone through the difficulty of losing someone who was important to us, and not because of a death or because of something joyful sending them on to another place, but because there was actually conflict and you had to separate. And I think it's important as we read this passage that we understand that following Jesus is going to oftentimes come with pain and sorrow and struggle. And some of that pain, sorrow, and struggle is going to be relationally based. And that's just hard. That's just hard. And it takes time to get over those sorts of things. I think it's important that we recognize the humanity of Paul here. Paul makes a decision to depart, and he goes. And God blesses his mission. Make no mistake about it. But I can't imagine that Paul was kind of cool with this as he walked along. I can't imagine that Barnabas was okay with this sort of situation, that, that this sort of separation is just going to bring about grief, grief. And I think it's important for us as followers of Jesus that we recognize times of grief, that we recognize times of pain, and we don't simply rush past them. In fact, I think we need to sit in them for a minute to recognize the pain to feel what we feel because that's something that's real. And actually, if you read through the Psalms, and we looked at the Psalms a number of years back over the summer, my first summer here, and we talked a lot about this, this, this category of lament that we as followers of Jesus are called to grieve, to mourn with those who mourn, and also simply to grieve when things are not going well. It's, it's actually okay to grieve. But the thing is about followers of Jesus is that we grieve with hope. In fact, the lament psalms, as you go through them, the beautiful thing about them is that they don't just leave you crying. They actually draw your gaze up toward God. And that's the point. In the midst of suffering, in the midst of pain, can we still look through the ashes and see the face of our Lord Jesus? And that's what we need to wrestle with. We don't rush past the pain, but we do direct our gaze to God in the midst of the pain in the midst of the suffering. And that division is going to happen, and we need to fight to bring about reconciliation. Um, I think it's important to point out that the scriptures seem to indicate that this division between Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark did not last forever, meaning there are times when we struggle within the family of God. But the grace of God pushes us toward reconciliation. We are to be a people marked by forgiveness and grace marked by forgiveness and grace, meaning we don't just talk about grace and forgiveness, but we live it out, we practice it. Cyprian, the bishop of Carthage in North Africa during the 250s, he says it like this, Beloved brethren, we are philosophers not in words but in deeds. We exhibit our wisdom not by our dress but by truth. We know virtues by their practice rather than through boasting of them. We do not speak of great things, but we live them. But we live them. 
In other words, when we proclaim the grace of God and when we claim that we have been reconciled to God, we are required to extend that same grace to others, seeking reconciliation with those who might have hurt us, especially within the family of God. This is not easy, Redeemer Fellowship. This is not easy. Abandonment hurts. It brings about all sorts of pain, and, and, and I'm sure there's trauma attached to that pain, and there's things that trigger it when we maybe read certain emails or certain text messages or see certain pictures, and we're automatically transported back to that moment of pain. But God promises us that he walks with us through it, that he walks with us through it, and he, and he challenges us and encourages us and pushes us to continue directing our gaze toward him so that we might be vessels of this reconciliation, this, this reconciling grace that we can extend to the world around us and those who have wronged us. See, it's not a flippant thing when Jesus instructs his followers to love their enemies. He means it. He means it. Especially the household of faith. Especially the household of faith. But I do want to also Recognize that these things take time. These things take time. Oh, but God is patient, right? And God has grace for that. And he encourages us and he pushes us. He uses one another to push us and encourage us. We need to have those ears to hear, to listen to those voices around us, challenging us and gently nudging us to move toward one another in grace, humility, and forgiveness. The text continues, and we're a little all over the place because we're covering a huge portion of text, so, so some of my main ideas are going to be chopped up a little bit into subcategories, but, but follow with me. It goes on, 16, 1 through 5. It says, Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers, Timothy was, at Lystra and Iconium. So Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. couple of observations. So Lystra is the place where Paul was stoned and almost died, and he meets Timothy there. Timothy's probably in his late teens at this point. The same Timothy Paul writes two letters to as a source of encouragement in his role as a pastor. And then Paul has Timothy circumcised because of the Jews who were in those places. What's happening here? We just got finished with this whole circumcision debate, and now Paul seems to be kind of going back on his word, maybe even going back on what was said at the Jerusalem Council. Really important, though. we got to pay attention to the text because of the Jews who were in those places. See, Timothy's circumcision is not necessarily theological in nature, although it's practical theology, but it's not necessarily doctrinal in nature, but rather it's missional in nature. It has to do with the mission of God. In other words, in order for Timothy to be able to effectively minister in Jewish contexts, he needs to, in the words of Paul the Apostle, become all things to all people for the sake of the gospel. See, the goal is let's not just up front 
cause these people to stumble. Let's not put a barrier between the gospel and these Jewish people in these communities. See, you need to be able to engage with them in order to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. So you need to become like one of them. And in becoming like one of them, there is sacrifice involved in that. Make no mistake about it. There is sacrifice involved in what Timothy is about to endure. There's sacrifice there. But see, this is the nature of the mission, right? We, well, this is, is the main point. The nature of the mission means that we're going to suffer. We're going to have to sacrifice. We're going to experience pain along the way because that's what it means to follow Jesus. Remember, pick up your cross and follow me. If you want to be glorified with Christ, then you must suffer with Christ. See, this is what it means when we talk about sharing together in the life of Christ. The life of Christ was a life marked by what? Suffering, pain, sacrifice, self-giving. And it's a beautiful mission. And we resonate with it because we have literally made movie after movie after movie about the nature of giving of ourselves for others. We love that story. The reason why we love that story is because all of us are bent toward worship. In, in the words of John Calvin, um, he refers to it as sensus divinitas. There's a spark of divinity in all of us, a sense of the divine in all of us. Whether Christian or non-Christian, we all know there's something out there. So we're moved by stories that point us to the something or the someone who is out there. And so we see this story of Timothy and and, and maybe some of you are, are, are squirming as you read that story. But he's willing to sacrifice for the mission of God. He's willing to, to give of himself, quite literally, for the mission of God. That's a beautiful thing. That's a beautiful thing. The mission is marked by suffering. It's marked by pain. It's marked by loss. We can grieve those losses. and In fact, we're encouraged to grieve those losses as we read through the Psalms, as we read through books like Lamentations, as we see as the book of Job, and we see just, just chapter after chapter after chapter of pain. Oh, but we grieve with hope. We suffer with hope along the way as we make our way to what we're going to sing about in a little bit, the house of Zion, where we will feast together. That's a beautiful story. The text continues. Sometimes it's clear. Verses 6 through 15. And verses 6 through 10, we'll start there. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. What an interesting text. And when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia, help us. When Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. And so what happens here? The Holy Spirit prevents them from going to Asia, Mysia, and Bithynia. And so Paul receives a vision. God steps in, right? God not only steps in to prevent them from doing something, but he prevents them from doing something so that they might do another thing. 
And so he leads them out of Asia Minor and into Europe through what has been traditionally referred to as the Macedonian call. So a couple things. Paul is moving from place to place, doing the work that was tasked him. And it's in the midst of this movement where he's given clarity. Now, on a side note, sometimes when we're faced with big decisions, the best thing to do is simply start taking some steps. Start moving a little bit. That's, that's just some practical wisdom. Just take a step. But the bigger point here is that Paul's steps are directed by God himself through this vision. And we're now given front row seats to one of the most important theological concepts we need to grapple with as followers of Jesus. And what's that? Is that God's leading and calling on our lives. While it produces fruit and leaves life in its wake, it never ever guarantees safety and ease. It never, ever guarantees safety and ease. In fact, following Jesus seems to more often than not lead us into difficulty and suffering rather than ease and comfort. And again, to quote C.S. Lewis, who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And that's the, the adventure side of following Jesus, and, and not many of us are cut out for adventure. It makes it hard. We don't necessarily like the discomfort that, 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 is, that is accompanying the unknown. We don't like surprises. Oh, but as we read through the book of Acts, man, God's full of surprises, isn't he? Some good, some painful. Not bad, painful. And that's, that's what it means to follow Jesus. Because remember, who are we following? We're following the suffering servant. Yes, he is glorified and seated at the right hand of the Father now. Because he's already died and rose again. But we haven't had that first death yet. And so we are walking in his footsteps. Oh, but you know what? He walks with us. He walks with us. That's the beauty of this thing. He walks with us. So there's this Macedonian call, and, and, and what happens? They end up going to the place that God had called them. In verses 11, 15, it goes like this. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, I guess, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in the city some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who had heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. And so first thing, these we passages that show up in the book of Acts are, are just an important little fun thing to, to point out. It seems that Luke is with them at this point. It seems that Luke is writing first person like we. Yeah, I was there. In case anyone doesn't know, I was with Paul at this point. And he wants us to know that, which let's be honest, we'd want people to know that too. So, Paul, so Luke is there at this point. There doesn't seem to be a synagogue in this particular city, so they found a place of prayer. 
And places of prayer were, were these, these spots, typically by bodies of water, so they can perform ritual washings and what have you. That was a place where people can come together, God-fears and Jews, in cities where there weren't enough people to come together and form a synagogue. And so Paul continues doing what he always does. He, he seeks to go to the Jew first and then to the Gentile, and he ends up on the Sabbath at this place of prayer. And then after speaking to the women, Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, believes and was baptized, her and her whole household. And so what is happening here? See, the Spirit's leading produces fruit. And it leads to more fruit because lives are changed in the process. See, Lydia is a woman of great courage. Why is that? See, she not only... She's not only hospitable and opens her home to these foreign men, but she serves as the host of the Philippian church, where in the words of Bible teacher Marge Moscow, they worshipped a new Jewish Messiah, and not an emperor or any of the ancient and socially respectable pagan gods, and this could have ruined her reputation and her business. So she's a, man of, a woman of courage, a woman of courage that's willing to step out and do difficult things during a difficult time. And again, the nature of the mission is risky and can often lead to moments of suffering and pain. There's risk involved. See, we, we put all the chips into the middle of the table when we follow Jesus. That's what we do. We're saying, okay, God, you got it. I'm going to take that step. And we don't know what's on the other side. I think on a side note, it's so incredible that our women and our young girls have models to look up to in Scripture like Lydia. Here we have a woman who courageously risked wealth and reputation for the sake of the kingdom of God, and she served the church in such a beautiful way. And I love that. I love that. So the text continues, verses 16 through 40, but we always rejoice. And again, you've noticed we're not touching on every single thing because if we touch on every single thing, we'd be here for hours. We're making our way through this passage to kind of give the broad brushstrokes of what's going on. But we always rejoice. Verses 16 through 40. It starts like this. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her, own, her owners with much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim the way of salvation to you. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, which is hilarious, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when our owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them, gave orders to beat them with rods, and when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. And so for the sake of time, let's briefly summarize the events. Paul is confronted with a slave woman being exploited for her abilities to tell fortunes. I believe she was able to do this, but she was obviously possessed by some sort of demon. This wasn't a good thing. 
And in fact, it's interesting because it seems like she's saying good things. But there's, there's inconsistency. See, Paul doesn't want people to get confused where, where pagan gods and demons are proclaiming something that could be misunderstood. Like, yeah, to the Christian ear, this sounds like, oh, she's proclaiming good news. But to pagans who are wandering around, it's like, oh, just another god on the shelf. So that's important. That's why he wants to kind of shut her up a little bit. It's like, no, 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 no. You're going to confuse people. I can proclaim this message. You are obviously possessed by a demon. And maybe he also was just annoyed at the same time because it says he was annoyed. But no, I think there's more to it than that. So Paul basically performs an exorcism. And as a result, the slave owners lose their source of income. Right? Here's where, where idols start to be impacted by the kingdom of God. And, and, and literally it appears as all, you know, breaks loose. Their anger causes a riot, leading to the beating and imprisonment of Paul and Silas. And so here's where we start to see that the mission of God produces pain and suffering. The mission of God leads to persecution, especially when you're combating the idols of this world. And how they respond is one of the most intriguing and challenging texts we might read in Scripture. Let's, let's just think for a minute. What happened to Paul and Silas? Many blows they endured. Many blows, it says. They were beat up pretty significantly. Right? This isn't like a, a slap on the wrist sort of thing. They were beat up. Mind you, he's probably getting over the stoning that he experienced a few months back, and now he's getting beat again. And we're going to see again and again. It's just like constant. Paul's getting hit and hit and constant suffering, persecution, and pain because of his faithfulness, because of his faithfulness. And how do they respond? In verse 25, it says, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. They were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. That's an important piece prisoners were listening to them. And so in the midst of this suffering, in the midst of this pain, in the midst of this persecution, probably both physically, spiritually, and even relationally, because he just left his good buddy Barnabas. And the last time he was in jail, if I remember correctly, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, I'm pretty sure Barnabas was with him. I could be wrong. But what is he doing? He's singing. I don't, I don't know how many of you sing after you get beat up. I don't know how many of you rejoice when you're in the midst of pain. If you have kids, there's a different type of singing when you put them to their rooms, right? When you, when you, when you, when you discipline your child, it's a different sort of singing that they participate in. You know, it's more of, a, more of a wailing, right, a gnashing of teeth kind of thing that happens when, when our kids are in trouble. But they were singing, it seems. They were actually rejoicing unto God. They were worshiping the Lord. They were singing hymns in the midst of their pain. See, this is a joy that can only come from the Holy Spirit of God and the knowledge that we belong to what we sang about earlier, a good, good father. That is what is happening, and this joy is contagious. They were listening. 
They heard what was going on, and we'll see in just a few minutes what happens to this Philippian jailer. But, but, but I want to be careful here. A strong caveat. Joy does not mean we don't grieve. It doesn't mean that. It can't mean that. Because as we read the scriptures, we see both of those things held in tension with one another. Joy does not mean we don't grieve. And joy does not mean we pretend. No, we can't just walk into the building on Sunday morning holding heavy things while uttering to everybody, praise the Lord, all's good. Because sometimes all's not good. And faithfulness means being honest with our brothers and sisters so they can engage with us and lift us up. Man, we talked about this almost week in and week out. We need one another, especially in those dark hours. Whether it's, whether it's an external thing that is causing that darkness to come upon us or it's something we're wrestling with inside of ourselves, we need one another. We need that encouragement. We also need the grief because the grief enables us to understand our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who was a man of sorrows. It's how we share in the life of Christ. It also enables us to identify with other grievers along the way. It's a gift, that grieving. Pete Scazzaro says there's, there's three sort of phases we should go through when we're experiencing grief. Paying attention to the pain. Paying attention to it. Recognizing it. Understanding it. Waiting in the confusing in-between. Right? Before the resolution comes to the problem. For the problem, there's that time in between that we need to wait. We need to wait. We need to be patient. We need to trust that God is going to minister to our souls in the midst of that. That he's going to use our brothers and our sisters to minister to our souls in the midst of that. So we wait in the confusing in between. And then we allow the old to birth the new. We allow the old to birth the new. I want to read the rest of this text because I want to tell you what happens here with with the Philippian jailer. And so suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. And when the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and he was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, we're here. Whoa, hold up, guy. We're here. Before you do anything rash, we're here. And I don't know what that is, right? Did, did Paul have, a, have an inkling from the Spirit that he knew that he wasn't supposed to escape? Because previously, Peter escaped from prison. But Paul stays. And I don't think one's right or wrong. I think it just happens to be what happened at the moment. And, and for some reason, maybe, maybe God spoke a word in the ear of Paul saying, like, yeah, hey, don't go anywhere. I know you're free, but don't go anywhere. You got work to do. I mean, isn't that story our story? We're free from the bonds of sin, but, but we're not ready to go anywhere. we got work to do. And so Paul's got some work to do here, and he remains, and he, and he cries out, don't harm yourself. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And I don't even know if he understood that question that he was asking, but he knew he needed whatever they had. Whatever they had, he knew he needed it. What must I do to be saved? And what does Paul say? What do they say, the whole group? 
Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who are in this house. What an amazing thing happens here. Everyone hears the gospel because of this arrest. Everyone hears the good news of the resurrected king, of the forgiveness of sins because of the pain they endured. That's the story, guys. That's what we need to do. The pain we endure needs to be one of the vehicles for the proclamation of the good news. We got hope. We have so much hope. In a world that's filled with everything other than hope, we bring to the table the resurrection. And we can speak life in the midst of of the pain, in the midst of the sorrow. Again, it doesn't mean we pretend, but how we go through our pain matters. I think of Job, his wife was saying, curse God and die, and and Job, he's crying out to God. He's in pain, and he's like, no, I'm not gonna do that, though. Like, that seems too far. It hurts. It's painful. It's difficult. But I'm gonna fix my my gaze upon God. Upon Christ, where can I go? Where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. And so it keeps on going. And they spoke the word of the Lord. And he took them, verse 33, the same hour of the night, washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. I love what happens is that this man is converted And then he practices hospitality. That's just like a side note, right? He engages immediately in the mission of God. Lydia does the same thing. Did you notice that? She's converted, her and her household, and then she invites them in. And we're actually going to see at the end of this chapter, guess who shows up again? Lydia and says, yeah, yeah, come on, come in, come in. The door's open. The door's open. What a challenge to us, right? To, to use what God has given us for the sake of his kingdom. I want to tell a little story. A story I recently read about, and uh, Debbie sent me a great devotional this past week. Um, Jane Marzuski, known as Nightbird. Has anyone heard of this woman yet? She's a singer who recently on America's Got Talent. Um, Jane, struggling through her third round of cancer, was recently abandoned by her husband, She's living an extremely difficult life that will most likely end in her death at a very young age. She's in her early 30s, I believe. In an interview with Christian writer Ann Voskamp, she says the following. I remind myself that I'm praying to the God who let the Israelites stay lost for decades. They begged to arrive in the promised land, but instead he let them wander. Answering prayers, they didn't pray. For 40 years, their shoes didn't wear out. Fire lit their path each night. Every morning, he sent them mercy bread from heaven. I look hard for the answers to the prayers I didn't pray. I look for the mercy bread that he promised to bake fresh for me each morning. The Israelites called it manna, which means what is it? That's the same question I'm asking again and again. There's mercy here somewhere, but what is it? It's not the mercy I asked for, but it's mercy nonetheless. In her appearance on America's Got Talent after stunning the judges, she said to them, you can't wait until life isn't hard anymore to decide to be happy. And so from what I understand, Jane is a follower of Jesus, and she gets that this life is marked by suffering and pain, but she's choosing, similar to Paul and Silas, to pray, sing, and rejoice. See, this doesn't mean we ignore the pain. 
In fact, she feels it as she wrestles with God regularly. I would encourage you to look this woman up and, and maybe even look up this devotion that was written on Ann Boskamp's website. The, sh- the Psalms show us examples of people wrestling with their pain, but by the end, our gaze must be drawn to our faithful God. That's the point. There's suffering along the way, and we bear fruit along the way in the midst of that suffering. But God wants us. He wants us. He wants our eyes lifted up toward him. He wants us to commune with him, to be with him in the dark nights of our souls and when we're on the mountaintop. He wants us to engage in our relationships with him, praying to him, encouraging our brothers and sisters, worshiping him, weeping with him, crying out to him. He wants us. He wants us. In the same way, those of you who have children, when they're going through something, you want them to come to you. You want to be their source of comfort, their source of of strength in the midst of that. No matter what time of night it is, you're willing to do it. And sometimes you're groggy and, and maybe not as excited at other times. But still, the moment you see their face and the tears coming down their eyes, you want to wrap your arms around them. And it doesn't matter how much sleep you've gotten doesn't matter how bad you feel. doesn't matter anything. You want to be their comfort. And that's God a million billion times over. A million billion times over. He wants us to go to him. He wants us to go to him. And so as we close out this morning, the mission of God itself is structured so that the world might know who God is, that they might catch a glimpse of the wonder and glory of the triune God. And so what this means is that it has to be cross-shaped. It has to be cross-shaped and it has to be marked by pain and suffering because the very image of the image of the invisible God, King Jesus, lived a life of sacrifice, pain, abandonment, and death. And he did it all with a peace and joy that surpasses all understanding. And so to quote Paul's letter to the Philippians, which just feels appropriate right now. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who because he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then he leaves them with a word of encouragement, that same church, knowing full well that the nature of the mission is marked by the cross. He says this, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And so as we come to the table this morning, we come with hope. We come knowing that as we participate in this sacrament that has been passed down year after year, for the last 2,000 years, that not only are we 
participating with one another and communing with one another, we are communing with God. And the God we commune with is a God who's marked by suffering. He is. Intentional suffering. He steps into the mess. He feels our mess. He wants us to bring our mess to him. He wants us to shoulder the mess of one another and to care for one another. And all the while, rejoicing in the Lord always. Let's pray. Father in heaven. Lord, this is a hard thing to do. And I don't want us to walk out of here kind of whipping ourselves and feeling as though we can't do it, Father. We do this by your grace. Even in the midst of pain, even as we heap ashes and sackcloth upon ourselves, Lord God. Father, it is by your grace that we can draw our gaze to you, Father. Help us to draw our gaze to you in the midst of the struggle, Lord. Help us in the midst of relational strife and turmoil, Lord God, to look to you. Father, to, to operate from the example set forth by your son Jesus, to pursue enemies, to extend forgiveness and grace just as you have extended forgiveness and grace to us. To walk with you, Lord God. Help us to walk with you. We can only do that by your grace and we can only do that with one another. We need one another. We need you, Lord. We thank you for this. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.